At this time of year, we begin to hear Christmas music everywhere we go. And interestingly, we'll even start to hear Christmas hymns, some of the great Christmas hymns that we sing in church. Hymns like, O Holy Night, or Away in a Manger, Silent Night, these types of songs. We'll start to hear these types of Christmas hymns in businesses like Starbucks and others that aren't very friendly to the Christian message, which is pretty ironic if you think about it, blasting over their loudspeakers are, are, are truths with which they vehemently disagree. So there's a cultural place for Christmas hymns, Christian Christmas hymns in our, in our culture still, at least now. And I find that odd, and I wonder if that's because many in our culture persist in this belief that Christian, uh, Christianity or the Christian message is, fun, is really not fundamentally different than every other message. Many in our culture have this uh, persistent, even unfortunately an unquestioned belief that God or whatever conception of God they have is at the top of a mountain and uh, there are many paths up to the top of the mountain and as long as you do your best on the path you're on, then you'll get to the top of the mountain one day. This is the belief that all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just superficially different. So we can play Christmas Christian hymns over the loudspeakers because, you know, Jesus is just kind of one way among many and not much different from every other worldview or religion out there. But when people stop, and if people would stop and listen and study these hymns being played in our Starbucks, they would realize, I think, I hope, realize that there's something unique about the Christian message that sets it apart from every other message. They would realize that Christianity says that God is indeed at the top of the mountain. He is king, Lord, sovereign. But that God didn't wait for us to work our way up to him, but rather he came down off of his mountain, so to speak, and met us where we are. They would understand that God didn't leave us alone in the world to figure out a way to Him, but rather He came and met us in the world He made in Jesus, His Son. Every other religion is built on the idea that we have to do something to get to God. But the uniqueness and beauty and mystery and wonder of our message is that the Creator of the cosmos came into His creation not to destroy it, or Susie just read, not to condemn it, but to redeem it and remake it. At Christmas, we remember, reflect on, and rejoice in the Creator who's come close. I praise God that these hymns are still being played over the loudspeakers in our Starbucks. Maybe, just maybe, God would use one of those hymns to capture someone's curiosity. And they would become beholden to a unique message. I don't, let, me, let me belabor this point, can I? Christianity is not like every other religion. It is fundamentally different in this way, in, in, in a lot of ways. Namely, every other religion has some schema of working into the favor of the divine. Christianity says, no, you can't do it, stop trying. The divine came to you, just trust in his son Jesus. That's remarkable. It's so freeing. People need to hear that. And people need to 
hear the contrast that, that, that exists. That Christianity is not another message. It's the message. So be winsome. Be apolog- do apologetics in your evangelism. Tell people they don't have to work their way up the mountain. Tell them to stop trying to climb the mountain. Tell them that the God on top of the mountain came down to them and wants to walk with them and be their friend in Christ. Tell them that. It's a beautiful message. It's the power of God into salvation. Okay. I need to keep going. We're going to continue studying Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to start finding your way to the second chapter of the Bible, go ahead and do so. There are pew Bibles in front of you, little black Bibles. You're more than welcome to use those Bibles. We'll be on page 2, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, we're going to see hints of these Christmas realities I've just talked about as early as the second chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1 was focused on God as a transcendent creator. Genesis 2 is focused on God as an imminent creator. Transcendent, meaning He's above. He transcends. He's above and over His creation. Imminent means He's near. He comes close to His creation. So in chapter 1, transcendent. Chapter 2, imminent. The God of the Bible is both high and holy and low and accessible. He's merciful and mighty. He's outside creation and inside creation. He's far and near. He's to be feared and to be enjoyed. He's creator and redeemer. What I'm going to say this morning is that these realities, though they find their perfect and fullest combined expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they actually show up, these aspects of God's character begin to show up as early as the opening chapters of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see a transcendent God come close, come near to His creation. We're going to study 2, 4 through 7, four verses. Praise the Lord. We're going to see three things in these four verses. Number one, we're going to see a new name for God, verse 4. This is our outline if you take notes. Number one, a new name for God, verse 4. Number two, an untended earth, verses 5. Through six, an untended earth, verses five through six, and then finally, verse seven, a holy moment. A holy moment. A new name for God, an untended earth, and a holy moment. Before we get into that, let me set this text in its context. I'm going to spend a few minutes on this because I think it's worth doing before we get into the nuts and bolts of this text. Notice verse 4 starts with this phrase, these are the generations. These are the generations. This phrase is used 11 times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. I'll give you just a couple of these examples. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and on and on I could go. There are 11 different examples or occurrences of this phrase, these are the generations. Why is that important? Well, this phrase serves as a header or a title to the various sections of Genesis. This phrase is always followed by an account of what happened 
from the starting point name. It's a heading that announces the historical development of the subject mentioned. It's like saying, this is what became of blank. So in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. It's like Moses, the author of Genesis, is saying, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. Echoing, of course, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, of course, all of chapter 1 and into the first part of chapter 2 is the, the narrative of the creation of the earth, the seven days of creation. And then verse 4 starts by saying, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. This is what happened. Now, this section that starts in verse 4 goes into the end, to the end of verse, excuse me, the end of chapter 4. So it goes from 2.4 to 4.26. This little section of about three chapters describes what happened to the world that God created in chapter 1 through 2, 3. So in 1, 1 through 2, 3, God takes chaos and creates a wonderful world. And then in this following section, 2, 4 through 4, 26, God, um, excuse me, the world devolves again into chaos and God begins making something wonderful through man. So chapter 2, many would say that chapter 2 is a, a different creation account. It's not a different creation account. It's rather an expansion of what we've already seen and heard in chapter 1. Chapter 2, in chapter 2, it's like Moses double clicks on chapter 1 verse 26 and expands on it. Or the sixth day of creation where God creates man. Chapter 1 tells us that man was created. Chapter 2 tells us how. Chapter 1 is like saying there was a parade on the sixth day. Chapter 2 is like saying, hey, here's what order the floats pass by in the parade. Here's what the floats looked like. So chapter 2 is massively important because it prepares us for what then happens in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 1 is about the creation of the universe. Chapter 2 is about the creation of man. Then chapter 3 is about the entrance of sin. Chapter 4 is about how sin spreads and expands in the world. Do you see the, the flow here? Creation of the universe, creation of man, fall of man, the spread of sin amongst mankind. So chapter 2 then functions like a bridge. It's a link between creation and corruption. Without chapter 2, the disaster of chapters 3 and 4 wouldn't be seen as the tragic and horrific events that they are. Here's how one Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross, says it. He says, Genesis 2 provides the necessary introduction to the record of the fall and the resultant curse. The magnitude of that sin and destruction can be fully understood only when the nature and purpose of humankind is understood. To know what God had invested in human life and what He had expected of it is to know what was lost at the fall. In other words, what Professor Ross is saying, for the fall of chapter 3 to make sense, we have to understand what we fell from. Falling off your bed is different than falling off a cliff. Falling off your bed might injure you some significantly, depending on how tall your bed is. Falling over a cliff, though, would perhaps kill you. We'll never understand the horrors of sin until we see the beauty of creation. Not just the creation of the cosmos, that's chapter 1. We want to see that beauty too, but the creation of man 
and woman. The beauty of what we are. This is why the gospel message, as we're doing evangelism, we must start the gospel message with the truths of Genesis 1 and 2, not necessarily the truths of Genesis 3. Yes, we should talk about sin with those who need Christ, but sin will only make sense within a worldview that starts with an omnipotent creator God and man and woman made in His image. Especially in an increasingly secular culture where a lot of our friends and family have no idea what the Bible says. They need to be instructed about how the story starts. So when you're talking to someone, friend or stranger or whatever, it might not be wisest to just say, hey, you know what, you're a sinner. (laughs) Though that might be true. Instead, you might start with, hey, a personal God made you. And oh, by the way, the God who made the stars, he's the one who made you. Therefore, you're accountable to him. Do you see how this helps our evangelism? We start with the truths of Genesis 1 and 2 and then 3. So chapter 2, verse 4, this is all context. Chapter 2, verse 4 begins with this heading, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, telling us that this section is about what happened with the heavens and the earth that God created. What happened centers on God's image bearers in their unique creation and their unthinkable Rebellion. One commentator says this text, chapters 2, 3, and 4, this is so good, focuses on human persons as the glory and the central problem of creation. Chapter 2, we're the glory of creation. 3 and 4, we're the problem. <laughs> That's where this text is going. That's where this section is headed. Now let's get into some of the details here in our text, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Number one, we see a new name for God. A new name for God. Notice again the end of verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God is a pairing of two Hebrew words for God, or titles, or names for God. Yahweh and Elohim. Genesis 1 exclusively uses Elohim. It's the more generic name, God. The name of God that highlights his transcendent power and glory, his role as creator. That's why it's used in Genesis 1 repeatedly. But then here in verse 4, Moses pairs it with Yahweh. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. What is he doing? Well, he's making a massive theological point. He's saying that the God of Genesis 1 is also the personal God of the Exodus. You see, the personal name for God is Yahweh. And we know that from Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is called to this burning bush. I'll just read you a few verses of this. Moses 3, 13 through 15. Moses is at this burning bush, this bush that is on fire but not being consumed. The the very presence of God is there. God is speaking to Moses audibly. And Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Which, by the way, isn't necessarily God's name describes what kind of God he is. He goes on, he says, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh is this name here in verse 15. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers. It's the covenant name of God, the personal name of God. His name is linked to his covenant. That's why he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who entered into relationship with your forefathers. Yahweh is the name that connects God to his people. It's the name that connects God to his promises for his people. So, back to Genesis 2-4, when Moses calls God Yahweh Elohim, he's making a massive theological point. He's saying, this is so important, he's saying that the transcendent God of Genesis 1 that created the universe is also the Redeemer God of, of the Exodus. He's saying that the God who creates is also the God who relates to his people. He's saying that God isn't so high that he can't be known. He's saying that Israel's God is both creator and redeemer. Moses uses this name, the Lord God, 20 times in chapters 2 and 3. Interestingly, if you look down to chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, you'll see again if your Bible um, only uses the word the English word God in chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, or 2 through 5 in particular. Why? This is when Satan is tempting Adam and Eve. Satan is saying things about God, and Eve is believing him. But the God they're talking about isn't the real God. The God Satan's talking about is manipulative, secretive, and malevolent. And this is a character that is so different from Yahweh Elohim that Moses avoids using this name altogether in their dialogue. Moses begins this section in chapter 2, verse 4, by making it clear that the one true and living God, Yahweh Elohim, is transcendent and personal, creator and redeemer, mighty and merciful, Lord and Savior. I hope you're in your mind starting to see how all this points us forward to Christmas. <laughs> He's high and low. He's Lord and Savior. The God of the Bible from the second chapter is revealed as a God who's high and low. He's Yahweh Elohim. His image bearers were, were made to rule his world and relate to him as sons and daughters. We were made to rule for him and walk with him. He created us to rule his world and relate to him. Now, I'm going to do an excursus here on something that you might not think is important. And that's okay. I can't uh, make you think anything. But I want to talk about covenant for a minute. Okay, and this is what you came to church for this morning, right? You know, you've always wondered if there's a covenant at creation. 
Well, let me talk to you just a little bit about a covenant here in this part of Genesis. The nature of this relationship between God and His people in the Bible in general is often described in terms of a covenant. What's a covenant? Well, it's a relationship between two parties where there's a permanent and serious commitment that's made based on faithful, loyal, steadfast commitment to promises. It's based on obedience and trust. Covenant relationships are all over the Bible. They're used to describe God's relationship with His people repeatedly. We often talk about marriage as a covenant relationship. And if that's news to you, we should do this more often. Marriage is a covenant relationship, meaning it's a permanent and serious commitment between two parties based on faithful, loyal love and trust. Not a business contract. A covenant doesn't function like a business deal, but rather a relationship with blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The way that plays out in our marriage, I guess, is you know, left to each marriage. When I don't do the dishes, there are curses. Sorry, Susie will talk to me about that later. This is one reason, by the way, why divorce is such a big deal. This is one reason why divorce, and I don't have time to preach on this, it's a huge deal because it's the severing of a, of a covenant relationship. This is why church membership is a big deal. We'll have a member meeting later today. What, what's, what are we going to do at the beginning of our member meeting? We're going to read the church covenant. When you enter into membership at a local church, you are covenanting with that church. It's not membership at a gym. It's not membership at your favorite club. You're entering into a serious relationship that has blessings and privileges and responsibilities. To take that lightly is to fail to understand what a covenant is and what church membership is. We are, in a sense, marrying, joining our lives together. Come hell or high water, we're saying, I'm with these people. And, you know, I might not like the pastor's sermon every week, and the, the music might not be my favorite style, and the carpet is really red, but you know what? These people, these people are my people, and I'm not going to just bail on them. Covenant is a theme through Scripture, defining the relationship of God between His people, but also between husbands and wives, and churches and members. Now, back to how covenant is at play here. Many scholars believe that though a covenant isn't explicitly mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2, God still nonetheless enters into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve upon their creation. Following Professor Tom Schreiner, let me give you several of the reasons why many believe there's a covenant of creation or a covenant at creation here in this text, and I'll just give you a few. First, the word covenant doesn't have to be present for a covenant to exist. God enters into a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, but the language of covenant isn't used there. Second, 
Hosea 6, 7 seems to say that there was a covenant with Adam. Hosea 6, 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Hosea is drawing a link between what happened with Adam and what happening, what's happening with the people of Israel. And he uses the language of covenant. Third, the elements needed for a covenant are present at creation. Two parties are there, God and Adam and Eve. And there are requirements or commitments that they must keep. Fourth, in Genesis 6.18, God says that he will establish his covenant with Noah. And this language of establishing a covenant is usually used when a covenant is being renewed, not created. So God's covenant with Noah seems to be a renewal of his covenant with Adam and Eve at his creation. Now, wake back up and let me tell you why this matters. This is very important because if God did indeed enter into a covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, even though covenant language isn't being used here, then it gives us yet more reason to believe that the transcendent God of Genesis 1 is also a personal God who wants to be in relationship with his people. We can get there without a covenant at creation. But this idea of a covenant at creation further solidifies what I'm trying to say is the main point of Genesis chapter 2, namely that the transcendent God of Genesis 1 is also a personal God. That He, Yahweh Elohim, the creator and covenant-making God, is a God who creates and relates to His people. And this is huge because many of us struggle with viewing God as too much of one or the other. He's either so high that I can't get to him and he's always mad at me, or he's so low and so near that he doesn't really care what I do. He's kind of like my homeboy. Did y'all ever see the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy? Wouldn't recommend it. But... Starting in Genesis 2, this reality, this picture of God is being painted, that God is both high and low. He's creator and covenant maker. He wants to enter into a, commit, a committed relationship with you. A committed relationship with you. And he made you. We have to get both or miss the biblical picture of God. Now, this has great implications. This reality has great implications for our lives as Christians. One of the ways, and I mentioned this just earlier in our service, is in our prayer life. When we pray, we need to remember that the God we approach in private prayer or corporate prayer, the God we approach is the God who created the universe. And He's also the God who wants to hear from us. He's the God who's high and low. He enjoys listening to us. He wants to respond to us. He invites us to talk to Him. In prayer, we can take our praises and petitions, our confessions and laments, our joys and complaints. Have you ever taken your complaints to God? You're like, oh, God doesn't care about that stuff. God doesn't care about what I really think. Really? Have you read the Psalms? When was the last time you were honest with God? Like the last time you really told him what you think and how you're feeling and what you're dealing with. Not in some kind of whiny way, 
but like you would in a mature relationship. He wants to hear our confessions, our laments, our joys and complaints, our prayers, our petitions. And when we pray, we're talking to the God who spoke and galaxies rolled out. (laughs) This is no small thing. He created everything and he calls us friend. So we should pray early and often. That's number one. There's a new name for God. The Lord God. All throughout this section. Number two, in verses five through six, we're going to see the untended earth. The untended earth. Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. <coughs> Moses is describing the earth, when man was made, the pictures of an untended earth. These verses describe the land when God formed Adam. The nose there in verse 5 tell us why it was untended. There's no bush, no small plant, no rain, no man to work the ground. The earth needed man to come and rule it, subdue it, and cultivate it. The picture is of a world waiting on the arrival of man. This verse reminds us of chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When God created the earth, it wasn't initially a hospitable place. The plants and animals needed to be cultivated. There wasn't any rain. Verse 6 says that a mist or spring, some of your translations might even say flood. It's a little unclear what that is, so I'm not even going to venture a guess. Somehow water was coming up from the earth and watering the land rather than coming down from the clouds. It reminds us of the watery wasteland of chapter 1, verse 2. The bigger, bigger point that I'm trying to make is that in a sense, the earth needed man to come and bring order and shape to it. Yes, God had created everything, and God can do anything He wants, but He designed man, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to bring what He, he started to completion. One scholar says, if plant life is to grow in this garden, it will be due to a joint operation. God will do His part, And man will expedite his responsibilities. Rain is not sufficient. Tillage is not sufficient. God is not a tiller of the soil. And man is not a sender of rain. But the presence of one, excuse me, the presence of one being without the other guarantees the perpetuation of desert-like conditions. In other words, for things to work right in God's world, man has to show up. In order for things to work right in God's world, man has to show up. And this is so instructive for us. Those with a high view of God's sovereignty can sometimes minimize man's responsibility. We'll say with the psalmist in Psalm 127.1, Yes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But we fail to realize that the Lord needs us laboring for Him to build the house. The house is going to be built. We need to be building while the Lord builds through our building. In the context of the church, this means we must be faithful to do our part and trust God to do His part. 
We must be faithful to preach and teach His Word because His church won't be built on anything less or anything more. We must devote ourselves to prayer because God moves through the prayers of His people. Did you know that something will not happen unless we pray? We must love one another and serve one another or we won't grow together into the image of Christ. We have a responsibility to share the gospel with the lost or they won't be saved. We must give generously to the church or the ministry of the church won't be propelled forward. We must show up to church or we'll never be ministered to or minister to others. This is why I often say attendance is our most basic ministry. We must worship with God's people or our hearts will grow cold. Our faith will weaken. Doubts will grow. Sin will flourish. Often people will say, man, I just don't feel close to God. One of the first things I want to know is, are you in church regularly? You're like, well, I go when I can. Are you in church regularly? Steady attendance with the people of God in the worship of God is the means that God has established to grow and sustain His people. God must do His part. We must do our part. We must practice meaningful membership and church discipline or the church will start to look like the world. It's easy to complain about hypocrisy and be like, you know what, the church just looks like everyone else. You know, all those Christians are just like everyone. Well, the Lord has given us some things to do where we can actually limit that and put an end to that, at least in our body. And we call those things meaningful membership, meaning we want people who are genuinely following Jesus to be members of this church. Not people who say, you know, I love Jesus, but you know what, I kind of just do my own thing. Or when someone says, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I'm going to live in habitual, unrepentant sin. That is not love for Jesus. That is, that is wanting to avoid hell and live however you want. That is not what the New Testament teaches. So we have a responsibility to form, structure, pray, and work in a local church like ours towards meaningful membership, church discipline, so that our church looks more and more like Jesus, so that our church looks more and more like the kingdom of God, a kingdom of joy and life and righteousness and peace. As individuals, we must apply ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord or we'll stay like infants in the Lord instead of growing into strong and mature adults. Again, as this text, verse 5, plainly says, only God can send the rain. But if His rain falls on a field that hasn't been cleared and cultivated and planted, nothing will grow. It's presumptuous. Friends, it's presumptuous to want God to do great things in your life and your family and your church and your neighborhood and your school and your office while you sit on your spiritual tush and do nothing. God designed the world to flourish through men and women who work the ground. The Creator created us to create something out of His creation. God is not a tiller, as I said earlier. God is not a tiller of the soil. Man is not a sender of rain. But the presence of one being without the other 
guarantees the perpetuation of desert-like conditions. Many people want God to show up and do something, but they're unwilling to show up themselves. I praise God that I get the privilege of leading a church where so many are showing up. And I don't just mean at church. I mean showing up. I mean serving. I mean giving. I mean praying. I mean evangelizing. (laughs) I mean serving behind the scenes in ways that no one knows. We are working the ground. Faithful brothers and sisters, members of our church, you're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good work and pray for God to make it rain on our efforts. Some plant, some water. What does Paul say? God gives the what? Growth, the increase. Let's be faithful to plant and water and see what God does. So, we've seen a new name for God. Verse 4, we've seen an untended land in verses 5 and 6. Now, finally, number 3, a holy moment, verse 7. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is one of the most intimate scenes of the Bible. The God who spoke galaxies into existence stoops down and forms and fashions man out of the ground like a potter, skillfully working the clay, and then he gently breathes his breath into his nostrils, animating him and bringing him into a conscious awareness of who he is. It says there in the text that the Lord God formed the man. The word formed tells us tells us that there was an intentionality. The same word is used in Genesis 6-5 to refer to the intentions of man's heart. There, there, was, there was intention or purpose in what God was doing. God's creative hands were skillfully and carefully designing man. God's creative hands, not blind biological reactions or natural selection over millions of years, fashioned and shaped and molded man. Yes, the text goes on to say that man was made from the earth or of dust from the ground. Man is a creature, indeed a creature made up of common chemicals with everything else. In Hebrew, man means or is Adam, where we get Adam, of course. But interestingly, the dust of the ground is this Hebrew word, Adamah. So the dust of the earth is embedded in his name. It's part of who he is. As one commentator says, dust is the womb from which man emerges and the receptacle to which one day he will return. We see this in chapter 3, verse 19. After sin, God is levying out consequences. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's remarkable that we're anything in this world. If, if God made us out of dust, how on earth do we also get this exalted status of image bearer to rule and reign over his creation? God raised us. I mean, this is the ultimate rags to riches story. God raised us up from the dust to reign over the earth. 
This is incredible. We should rejoice and be thankful that we have a dignity that our dogs and cats don't have. They're not reigning over the earth. They're reigning over your house. Get get a handle on that. We have this dignity that other creatures don't have, but we also have to remember that we came from dust. We should be humbled when we remember that we're from the dirt. Some people, some skeptics say, well, you can't prove that. You can't prove that. Well, what we do know is we all turn back to dust, right? So that's something. Anyways, that's for free. This is better, I hope. John Calvin, listen to Calvin. He says, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense. To that end, no one should exult beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid. Sorry, Elisha. I know we're not supposed to say that word, but it's Calvin. So he must be excessively stupid who does not hear, learn humility. In other words, we should never forget who we are, where we came from, what we are. We reflect God himself. That's amazing. And he made us out of dirt. So next time you're at the gym, standing and flexing in front of the mirror, obviously I do this a lot. (laughs) I never go to the gym, ever. Uh, But when you're there and you're beholding your glory, remind yourself that you're made out of dirt. Learn humility. That's my scientist right there. <laughs> Amen. God made us, the point is that God made us in a way that creates both amazement and humility. We are raised to this position in the world that is exalted, but we're raised from dust. We need to remember where we came from. It says that God breathed the breath of life in the man's nostrils. Back in chapter 1, verse 30, it also says that the animals have the breath of life. To every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. So some suggest, and also, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 7, says we became a living creature. Chapter 1, verse 20, it says the waters swarmed with living creatures. Verse 24, uh, the livestock were called living creatures. So some would take this to mean, it's the same word used in all three places, some would take all this to mean, and they would suggest that mankind is therefore uh, fundamentally the same as animals. And what we should say is, yes, animals and humans are living and breathing beings. (coughs) But the way we got there is very different. The way we arrived there is different. Verse 7, again, says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It doesn't say that about any of the other creatures. God himself breathed into us the breath of life. And it's this act that makes us the image of God. It's what gives us a soul, 
where our capacity to hear God's word and relate to God, to create, to think logically, to know right from wrong, to have complex emotions, all of this comes from this reality of God breathing his life into our bodies. We're not less than dust, but we are so much more. We're given breath by God himself. This word breathe paints a deeply intimate, warm, and personal picture of this scene. The Lord God, who just used his mouth to speak the universe into existence, now stoops down and gets face to face with this lump of dust, using the same mouth that he created the galaxies with to breathe life into man. This is a holy moment. The creator came close to his creation. Think of it. The very breath of God is what's in you. Maybe you're a skeptic. You're still trying to wrestle through all of this. Like, is Christianity true? Is the Bible true? I don't know. I'm kind of just struggling with all of this. You just have to ask yourself some questions like, how do you explain the immaterial realities of your life? Your moral sense your ability to reason and think through a logical argument, your capacity to feel multiple things all in the same jumbled moment. What explains the immaterial part of you? You have to decide. Is it because chemicals are reacting in your brain? Or that the very breath of this is incredible. If this is true, this is, this is the most amazing thing ever. You're not an animal, friends. Hear me. You're not an animal. You have the breath, the breath, the breath of God inside of you. This whole argument, oh, we're no different than the animals. I'm just like, oh, do you even know who you are? We are not like the animals. God breathed face to face. He breathed his breath into us, making us his image bearers. This reminds me of how I used to speak to my children when they were babies compared to how I would speak to everyone else. Uh, I would get down on the ground, lay beside them, speak to them gently and tenderly, the same voice I would use here to preach God's word I would use on the floor in my living room to speak to my babies in the same way the creation of man is almighty God coming off the mountain as it were, laying on the floor and speaking tenderly and warmly and gently into a lump of clay, animating dirt so that now we are the apex and glory of creation. God created us through giving of himself. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Life can only come from life. The living God breathed life into our nostrils. And 
one way this applies to us is it begins to set a precedent or a pattern for us. It will start to see all over the Bible that God, when God creates his people, he does it through acts of self-giving. He gives himself to his creation. The way Yahweh Elohim created man foreshadows how he will later create his church. On the cross, God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God creates by giving. After his resurrection, Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to his disciples in a way that reminds us of Genesis 2-7. Remember when Jesus meets his disciples in the upper room, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes his presence into his people, eternally uniting them to himself, and empowering them for the mission that they must have in the world. And this pattern of creating his people through, through self-giving love goes all the way back to Genesis 2, 7. God raised Adam out of the dust by his breath. God creates his church by giving himself on the cross. God empowers his church and unites his church to his son through giving his spirit. God doesn't wait for us to make it up the mountain. He comes to us and breathes on us, as it were, giving us himself. And as John 3.16 says, the, the beauty of the gift is that it's for anybody. If you end up dying and going to hell, it's simply because you did not believe on the name of the Son of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. You're lost in your sins. You're already there. All you have to do to be free is believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved and be given everlasting life. Some of you need to do this this morning. Some of you need to say, you know what? I've been trying my whole life to be good and look good and try to just keep my nose clean, but I know in my heart that I am a sinner. I, that, that I don't even keep my own standards you know, I can't even get out of bed when I want to. And I am tired of presuming. I am tired of presuming that I've kept God's standards in such a way that would make Him welcome me into His presence simply because I've been good. Some of you are coming to a place where you know that, you're, you know that all your goodness is just not good enough. And you're starting to see the glory of the Son of God. And you're starting to see that He is your only hope. And you're starting to see that if you put your faith in Him, you will be forgiven. And I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would do that even now. And receive the breath of God. The breath of His forgiveness and grace and mercy in your life. One more thing and we're done. 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, strangely enough, quotes this text. 
1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 47, Paul uses Genesis 2, 7 to make a point, and I want to close this sermon by trying to make the point he makes. It's yet one more way that God, the self-giving God, promises to give himself to us. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. 1 Corinthians 42. So, 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So he's talking about resurrection. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Genesis 2.7. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I know there's a lot of convoluted language in there. Here's Paul's argument. It's actually pretty simple. Just as the natural preceded the spiritual in God's creation of Adam, so there's also a spiritual body represented by Christ that comes after the natural body represented by Adam. All of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be united to Christ and therefore united to what he calls the man of heaven and become of heaven, so that verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, if you are united to the man of heaven, you will be raised like the man of heaven and be in heaven with the man of heaven. Do you see the grace of the self-giving God? He gives you life. He gives you His Son. He gives you His Spirit. And one day, if you trust Him, He's going to give you a new body and a new world. Trust Him. Trust Him. He wants to relate to you. He understands what you've done and what's been done to you. And as we sang earlier, He actually feels sorrow for you in your sorrow. He's not just some distant, transcendent God looking down from heaven, waiting for you to get your act together. He's come near to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He loves you. If you'll have faith like a child, you'll be saved. Faith like a child, you'll be raised. Created like the man of dust. One day we'll be raised like the man of heaven. This is the promise for everyone who turns from their sins and puts all their hope in Jesus. Those who believe that God is Yahweh Elohim, creator and redeemer. Those who know that Yahweh Elohim and His Son Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved 
those who put their faith in him, turn from their sins, will be saved and will enter into a relationship that begins to become the most important thing in your life. Some of you this morning might need to talk to someone you came with, maybe a friend, maybe someone just sitting around you. You can grab me in the foyer out here afterwards. You're like, John, I just want to know, want to know more. I've got questions. I'm confused. I think I want to be a Christian. Please talk to someone. Find someone. Ask them your questions. Let us help you understand this message of the self-giving love of God, of a creator God who has come close to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending the man of heaven, your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to raise again from the dead, so that everybody who puts their hope in them, in him, will be forgiven, will be made righteous, will be given your spirit, and will be ushered into a new heavens and new earth upon your return. Father, help us to remember who we are and where we came from. Help us to remember that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Help us to remember that only you can cause the rain, but you have created us to work the land. So help us to be faithful workers, and we pray that you would rain your goodness, your mercy, your spirit, your power down into our lives, our families, our church, our city, our nation, the nations of the world. May we be found faithful to be about your work. And may you give us the privilege of monsoon-like rains from heaven upon our lives, upon our church. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.